Chapter One of Sister Carrie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sister Carrie by Theodore Dreiser. Chapter One The Magnet Attracting A Waif Amid Forces. When Caroline Meeber boarded the afternoon train for Chicago, her total outfit consisted of a small trunk, a cheap imitation alligator skin satchel, a small lunch in a paper box, and a yellow leather snap purse containing her ticket, a scrap of paper with her sister's address in Van Buren Street, and four dollars in money. It was August, 1889. She was eighteen years of age, bright, timid, and full of the illusions of ignorance and youth. Whatever touch of regret at parting characterized her thoughts, it was certainly not for advantages now being given up. A gush of tears at her mother's farewell kiss, a touch in her throat when the cars clacked by the flour mill where her father worked by the day, a pathetic sigh as the familiar green environs of the village passed in review, and the threads which bound her so lightly to girlhood and home were irretrievably broken. To be sure, there was always the next station, where one might descend and return. There was the great city, bound more closely by these very trains which came up daily. Columbia City was not very far away, even when she was in Chicago. What prey is a few hours— a few hundred miles. She looked at the little slip bearing her sister's address, and wondered. She gazed at the green landscape, now passing in swift review, until her swifter thoughts replaced its impression with vague conjectures of what Chicago might be. When a girl leaves her home at eighteen, she does one of two things. Either she falls into saving hands and becomes better, or she rapidly assumes the cosmopolitan standard of virtue and becomes worse. Of an intermediate balance, under the circumstances, there is no possibility. The city has its cunning wiles, no less than the infinitely smaller and more human tempter. There are large forces which allure with all the soulfulness of expression possible in the most cultured human. The gleam of a thousand lights is often as effective as the persuasive light in a wooing and fascinating eye. Half the undoing of the unsophisticated and natural mind is accomplished by forces wholly superhuman. A blare of sound, a roar of life, a vast array of human hives, appeal to the astonished senses in equivocal terms. Without a counsellor at hand to whisper cautious interpretations, what falsehoods may not these things breathe into the unguarded ear? Unrecognized for what they are, their beauty, like music, too often relaxes, then weakens, then perverts the simple human perceptions. Caroline, or Sister Carrie, as she had been half-affectionately termed by the family, was possessed of a mind rudimentary in its power of observation and analysis. Self-interest with her was high, but not strong. It was, nevertheless, her guiding characteristic. Warm with the fancies of youth, pretty with the insipid prettiness of the formative period, possessed of a figure promising eventual shapeliness, and an eye alight with certain native intelligence, she was a fair example of the middle American class, two generations removed from the emigrant. Books were beyond her interest. Knowledge a sealed book. In the intuitive graces she was still crude, she could scarcely toss her head gracefully. Her hands were almost ineffectual. The feet, though small, were set flatly. And yet she was interested in her charms, quick to understand the keener pleasures of life, ambitious to gain in material things. A half-equipped little knight she was, venturing to reconnoiter the mysterious city and dreaming wild dreams of some vague, far-off supremacy, which should make it prey and subject, the proper penitent, groveling at a woman's slipper. That— said a voice in her ear, is one of the prettiest little resorts in Wisconsin. Is it? she answered nervously. The train was just pulling out of Waukesha. 
for some time she had been conscious of a man behind. She felt him observing her mass of hair. He had been fidgeting, and with natural intuition she felt a certain interest growing in that quarter. Her maidenly reserve, and a certain sense of what was conventional under the circumstances, called her to forestall and deny this familiarity. But the daring and magnetism of the individual, born of past experiences and triumphs, prevailed. She answered. He leaned forward to put his elbows upon the back of her seat, and proceeded to make himself volubly agreeable. "'Yes, that is a great resort for Chicago people. The hotels are swell. You are not familiar with this part of the country, are you?' "'Oh, yes, I am,' answered Carrie. "'That is, I live at Columbia City. I have never been through here, though.' "'And so this is your first visit to Chicago?' he observed. All the time she was conscious of certain features out of the side of her eye. Flush, colorful cheeks, a light mustache, a gray fedora hat. She now turned and looked upon him in full, the instincts of self-protection and coquetry mingling confusedly in her brain. "'I didn't say that,' she said. "'Oh,' he answered in a very pleasing way, and with an assuming air of mistake, "'I thought you did.' Here was a type of the traveling canvasser for a manufacturing house, a class which at that time was first being dubbed by the slang of the day, drummers. He came within the meaning of a still newer term, which had sprung into general use among Americans in 1880, and which concisely expressed the thought of one whose dress or manners are calculated to elicit the admiration of susceptible young women, a masher. His suit was of a striped and cross pattern of brown wool, new at that time, but since become familiar as a business suit. The low crotch of the vest revealed a stiff shirt bosom of white and pink stripes. From his coat sleeves protruded a pair of linen cuffs of the same pattern, fastened with large gold plate buttons, set with the common yellow agates known as cat's eyes. His fingers bore several rings, one the ever-enduring heavy seal, and from his vest dangled a neat gold watch-chain, from which was suspended the secret insignia of the Order of Elks. The whole suit was rather tight-fitting, and was finished off with heavy-soled tan shoes, highly polished, and the grey fedora hat. He was, for the Order of Intellect represented, attractive, and whatever he had to recommend him, you may be sure was not lost upon Carrie, in this her first glance. Lest this order of individuals should permanently pass, let me put down some of the most striking characteristics of his most successful manner and method. Good clothes, of course, were the first essential, the things without which he was nothing. A strong physical nature, actuated by a keen desire for the feminine, was the next. A mind free of any consideration of the problems or forces of the world, and actuated not by greed, but by an insatiable love of variable pleasure. His method was always simple. Its principal element was daring, backed, of course, by an intense desire and admiration for the sex. Let him meet with a young woman once, and he would approach her with an air of kindly familiarity, not unmixed with pleading, which would result in most cases in a tolerant acceptance. If she showed any tendency to coquetry, he would be apt to straighten her tie, or if she took up with him at all, to call her by her first name. If he visited a department store, it was to lounge familiarly over the counter and ask some leading questions. In more exclusive circles, on the train or in waiting stations, he went slower. If some seemingly vulnerable object appeared, he was all attention, to pass the compliments of the day, to lead the way to the parlor car, carrying her grip, or failing that, to take a seat next her, with the hope of being able to court her to her destination. Pillows, books, a footstool, the shade lowered, all these figured in the things which he could do. If, when she reached her destination, he did not alight and attend her baggage for her, it was because, in his own estimation, he had signally failed. A woman should some day write the complete philosophy of clothes. 
no matter how young, it is one of the things she wholly comprehends. There is an indescribably faint line in the matter of a man's apparel, which somehow divides for her those who are worth glancing at and those who are not. Once an individual has passed this faint line on the way downward, he will get no glance from her. There is another line at which the dress of a man will cause her to study her own. This line, the individual at her elbow, now marked for Carrie. She became conscious of an inequality. Her own plain blue dress, with its black cotton tape trimmings, now seemed to her shabby. She felt the worn state of her shoes. "'Let's see,' he went on. "'I know quite a number of people in your town. Morganroth, the clothier, and Gibson, the dry-goods man.' "'Oh, do you?' she interrupted, aroused by memories of longings their show-windows had cost her. At last he had a clue to her interest, and followed it deftly. In a few minutes he had come about into her seat. He talked of sales of clothing, his travels, Chicago, and the amusements of that city. "'If you are going there, you will enjoy it immensely. Have you relatives?' "'I am going to visit my sister,' she explained. "'You want to see Lincoln Park,' he said, and Michigan Boulevard.' They're putting up great buildings there. It's a second New York. Great. So much to see. Theaters, crowds, fine houses. Oh, you'll like that. There was a little ache in her fancy of all he described. Her insignificance in the presence of so much magnificence faintly affected her. She realized that hers was not to be a round of pleasure, and yet there was something promising in all the material prospect he set forth. There was something satisfactory in the attention of this individual, with his good clothes. She could not help smiling as he told her of some popular actress of whom she reminded him. She was not silly, and yet attention of this sort had its weight. "'You'll be in Chicago some little time, won't you?' he observed at one turn of the now easy conversation. "'I don't know,' said Carrie vaguely, a flash vision of the possibility of her not securing employment rising in her mind. "'Several weeks, anyhow,' he said, looking steadily into her eyes. There was much more passing now than the mere words indicated." he recognized the indescribable thing that made up for fascination and beauty in her. She realized that she was of interest to him, from the one standpoint which a woman both delights in and fears. Her manner was simple, though for the very reason that she had not yet learned the many little affectations with which women conceal their true feelings. Some things she did appeared bold. A clever companion, had she ever had one, would have warned her never to look a man in the eyes so steadily. "'Why do you ask?' she said. "'Well, I'm going to be there several weeks. I'm going to study stock at our place and get new samples. I might show you round.' "'I don't know whether you can or not. I mean, I don't know whether I can. I shall be living with my sister, and—' "'Well, if she minds, we'll fix that.' He took out his pencil and a little pocket notebook, as if it were all settled. "'What is your address there?' She fumbled in her purse, which contained the address slip. He reached down in his hip pocket and took out a fat purse. It was filled with slips of paper, some mileage books, a roll of greenbacks. It impressed her deeply. Such a purse had never been carried by any one attentive to her. Indeed, an experienced traveller, a brisk man of the world, had never come within such close range before. The purse, the shiny tan shoes, the smart new suit, and the air with which he did things, built up for her a dim world of fortune, of which he was the centre. It disposed her pleasantly toward all he might do. He took out a neat business card, on which was engraved Bartlett, Cario, and Company, and down in the left-hand corner, Chaz H. Drouet. "'That's me,' he said, putting the card in her hand and touching his name. "'It's pronounced Drouet. Our family was French on my father's side.' She looked at it while he put up his purse. Then he got out a letter from a bunch in his coat pocket. "'This is the house I travel for,' he went on, pointing to a picture on it. 
corner of state and lake. There was pride in his voice. He felt that it was something to be connected with such a place, and he made her feel that way. "'What is your address?' he began again, fixing his pencil to write. "'Carrie Meeber,' she said slowly. "'354 West Van Buren Street. Care F.C. Hansen.' He wrote it carefully down and got out the purse again. "'You'll be at home if I come around Monday night?' he said. "'I think so,' she answered. "'How true it is that words are but the vague shadows of the volumes we mean. Little audible links they are, chaining together great inaudible feelings and purposes. Here were these two bandying little phrases, drawing purses, looking at cards, and both unconscious of how inarticulate all their real feelings were. Neither was wise enough to be sure of the working of the mind of the other. He could not tell how his luring succeeded. She could not realize that she was drifting, until he secured her address. Now she felt that she had yielded something, he that he had gained a victory. Already they felt that they were somehow associated. Already he took control in directing the conversation. His words were easy. Her manner was relaxed. They were nearing Chicago. Signs were everywhere numerous. Trains flashed by them. Across wide stretches of flat, open prairie, they could see lines of telegraph poles stalking across the fields toward the great city. Far away were indications of suburban towns, some big smokestacks towering high in the air. Frequently there were two-story frame houses standing out in the open fields, without fence or trees, lone outposts of the approaching army of homes. To the child, the genius with imagination, or the wholly untraveled, the approach to a great city for the first time is a wonderful thing, particularly if it be evening, that mystic period between the glare and gloom of the world, when life is changing from one sphere or condition to another. Ah, the promise of the night! What does it not hold for the weary? What old illusion of hope is not here forever repeated? Says the soul of the toiler to itself, I shall soon be free. I shall be in the ways and the hosts of the merry. The streets, the lamps, the lighted chambers set for dining are for me. The theatre, the halls, the parties, the ways of rest and the paths of song, these are mine in the night. Though all humanity be still enclosed in the shops, the thrill runs abroad. It is in the air. The dullest feel something they may not always express or describe. It is the lifting of the burden of toil. Sister Carrie gazed out of the window. Her companion, affected by her wonder, so contagious are all things, felt anew some interest in the city, and pointed out its marvels. "'This is northwest Chicago,' said Drouet. "'This is the Chicago River,' and he pointed to a little muddy creek, crowded with huge masted wanderers from far-off waters, nosing the black-posted banks. With a puff, a clang, and a clatter of rails, it was gone. "'Chicago is getting to be a great town,' he went on. "'It's a wonder. You'll find lots to see here.' She did not hear this very well. Her heart was troubled by a kind of terror. The fact that she was alone, away from home, rushing into a great sea of life and endeavor, began to tell. She could not help but feel a little choked for breath, a little sick as her heart beat so fast. She half closed her eyes, and tried to think it was nothing, that Columbia City was only a little way off. "'Chicago! Chicago!' called the brakeman, slamming open the door. They were rushing into a more crowded yard, alive with the clatter and clang of life. She began to gather up her poor little grip, and closed her hand firmly upon her purse. Drouet arose, kicked his legs to straighten his trousers, and seized his clean yellow grip. "'I suppose your people will be here to meet you?' he said. "'Let me carry your grip.' "'Oh, no,' she said. "'I'd rather you wouldn't. I'd rather you wouldn't be with me when I meet my sister.' "'All right.' he said in all kindness. I'll be near, though, in case she isn't here, and take you out there safely. You're so kind, 
said Carrie, feeling the goodness of such attention in her strange situation. Chicago, called the brakeman, drawing the word out long. They were under a great shadowy train shed, where the lamps were already beginning to shine out, with passenger cars all about, and the train moving at a snail's pace. The people in the car were all up and crowding about the door. Well, here we are, said Drouet, leading the way to the door. Goodbye, till I see you Monday. Goodbye, she answered, taking his proffered hand. Remember, I'll be looking till you find your sister. She smiled into his eyes. They filed out, and he affected to take no notice of her. A lean-faced, rather commonplace woman recognized Carrie on the platform, and hurried forward. "'Why, Sister Carrie!' she began, and there was a perfunctory embrace of welcome. Carrie realized the change of affectional atmosphere at once. Amid all the maze, uproar, and novelty, she felt cold reality taking her by the hand. No world of light and merriment, no round of amusement. Her sister carried with her most of the grimness of shift and toil." "'Why, how are all the folks at home?' she began. "'How is father and mother?' Carrie answered, but was looking away. Down the aisle toward the gate leading into the waiting-room in the street stood Drouet. He was looking back. When he saw that she saw him and was safe with her sister, he turned to go, sending back the shadow of a smile. Only Carrie saw it. She felt something lost to her when he moved away. When he disappeared, she felt his absence thoroughly. With her sister she was much alone— a lone figure in a tossing, thoughtless sea. End of chapter 1